Welcome to the Hill City Podcast. This is a recording of the weekly gathering from Hill City Church. We exist to help people follow Jesus and build their lives around three goals. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. If you'd like to join us, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Caustic Center in Farmington Hills, Michigan. We hope that today's message will help you follow Jesus. Now, we have been in the midst of a series called On Earth As It Is in Heaven. And we come to a spot today in our text that we have been going through, known this thing known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' greatest sermon he ever gave. And he's talking about this simple reality of here is what life in the kingdom looks like. And if you've not been with us over the last seven weeks or so, what we've been doing is we've been reading through this this sermon, known as the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been looking at these different sections and seeing what does it mean for our lives, not just down the way in eternity as we go to heaven one day. No, no, we're talking about what does it look like now for us to usher heaven in today through our lives. And Jesus, that's ultimately what he desired for his followers. He didn't desire heaven just to be something we experience one day for all of eternity. He wanted eternity to begin today in the ways that we follow him and live our lives. And so what we've been doing is we've been talking about these areas of our lives that that we're not just trying to fix our behaviors in. Rather, we are trying to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and transform our hearts so that we ultimately begin to usher in this kind of life here and now. And last week, we learned together this simple truth that our motives matter. Our motives matter. Our motives play a big deal when it comes to what Jesus talked about, three areas. Our giving, which we talked about last week. Our prayers, which we're going to be talking about this week. And then our fasting, uh, which Adam is going to be talking about next week. And we looked at this really important verse in Matthew 6.1 that really sets up the rest of Matthew chapter 6. Here's what it says. Jesus is talking to his disciples who are sitting on the side of this hill in Galilee. And he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. And here's the key words, to be seen by them. That is Jesus going after the motives of our heart. He says, if you do, You will have no reward from your Father in heaven. What Jesus is saying, when it comes to your giving, when it comes to your prayers, when it comes to your fasting, don't do these acts that have significant impact on your faith in front of others to be seen by them. Rather, he says, remember what I said earlier. And in Matthew 5.16, we see this simple verse where Jesus says, let, let people see your acts of righteousness so that they may glorify your Father in heaven. That's the difference. Your motives matter. Do your motives support you being seen by others? Or do your motives support people seeing your motives and ultimately glorifying your Father in heaven? And so Jesus, he's getting after this reality when it comes to our prayers. And I don't know what you think about when you think of the word prayer. For some of you, you might think of, you know, this kind of ritual that you would go through 
uh, simply when you went to church on Sunday. Some of you, you might think of it as kind of a lifeline when something is going wrong in your life, something that almost like you, you treat Jesus like a genie and I need this, I need this, I need this, but then the rest of the days of your life, it doesn't really impact you. Some of you, it might be something that you just, you view it like breathing. It's just something that you are constantly doing regularly. For those of you who have been over at my house uh, and 50 women were over there yesterday. Um, hopefully, I don't know really many women uh, who went down into our basement, but what you'll see when you go down into my basement is kind of on my side of the basement. I do call it my side of the basement. Um, uh, it's not, it's, our whole house is our kids. Uh, let's just make that clear. Um, but on my side of the basement, you'll see a few, you know, I have some jerseys of kind of Detroit sports legends uh, there. And uh, on them, there's some signatures and stuff like that. And really that came as a result of, I have two uncles who had a bunch of sports memorabilia in their basement. I just loved that when I would go over to their house growing up. And so I have these jerseys and there's one jersey that I love, but it always elicits an awkward emotion for me. And that one jersey is Barry Sanders jersey, right? I love Barry Sanders. I believe one of the greatest Lions players of all time. But the reason it elicits a weird emotion to, to me is because uh, when my brother and I, uh, we were... I, late elementary school, I would be my guess, maybe uh, third or fourth grade, something like that. Uh, we went to a Lions training camp. And we went there and we had desire to get these footballs signed by one person, Barry Sanders. And Barry uh, was not at the practice when we showed up. And so we, my brother and I, we're just like, we're not really paying attention to what's happening. We're just trying to see like, where is Barry so that we can be the first kids to run over and get his autograph and kind of talk to the man, the myth and the legend kind of a thing, right? And so sure enough, we see this super nice Porsche roll into the parking lot and out of the Porsche walks Barry Sanders. And my brother and I were freaking out because we see this before anyone else sees it. And so we run over to this line where the players would walk in and guess what happened? Barry Sanders threw a stiff arm for my brother and I. Didn't sign our stuff. Now, I know nothing about Barry. He could have been having a bad day. He might have just been like, these kids are weird. Like, okay, like, granted. So I'm not saying anything bad about Barry Sanders, but it's always reminded me about this thing where, like, we wanted access to this guy who was standing right in front of us. We had, we had markers, and we had a football right there ready for him to sign, and he blew past us and said, not today, kids, and walked back, and we tried to get back into this players-only area, and the guy said, you don't have access to be here. My dad was all mad. He was ready to throw up a fight, burn the place down, you know, but we, you know, but we were like, no, no, it's okay. And so I love that jersey, but it elicits this kind of weird memory for me. Now, listen, I tell you that because the reality is this. We have access to someone far greater than a football player. We have access to the God of the universe who will never deny us, who will never kind of move past us to say, not today, like, are you serious again? You know, like these kind of things, like he's never gonna respond in those ways to us. It will always be graceful and kind and compassionate towards us. Yet for some of us, we have awkward feelings when we come and approach God in this way. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to respond. And it's in these passages that Jesus comes and begins to tackle this topic of prayer because it is meant to be something so central for you and I as his followers. Here's what he begins to say about prayer. Again, keep in mind, all around the idea of your motives, right? Your motives matter around prayer. 
in Matthew 6, starting in verse 5. He says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. I think about this, and I just think, what is Jesus warning us about? Like, what is the thing that he's coming and and challenging us? It's the same thing that he warned us about with giving. He says, if your righteousness is only being practiced in front of others, then you have the wrong heart when it comes to following him. He said, righteousness is not a bad thing to practice in front of others as long as your motivation is right as well. And so we shouldn't just pray in these ways that receive human praise, but instead our prayer should be done with sincere hearts seeking to connect to the heart of God. And so Jesus, he challenges his disciples in this passage to pray sincerely, not on street corners to be seen by others. He says, go and pray secretly in your room. Close the door even behind you. And he says, pray specifically. Don't just babble on with these endless words. He says, come and pour out your hearts before him, before God. This is what our heart is meant to be like. This is what our motivation should be like as his followers who are ushering in the kingdom of heaven. So based on what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that prayer is not about a platform for your own praise. It's not about showing off your devotion to God. It's not about a wish list that you have that you would like to be given to you. It's not a checklist to mark off your to-do list for the day. And it's not a repetitive list of words that are not coming from the heart. Rather, prayer is meant to be an ongoing conversation with God. I believe that that is the simplest way for us to define prayer as a church here. It is ongoing conversation with God. And here's the beautiful thing. In a conversation, you spend time talking, you spend time listening. The same is true when it comes to your relationship with God. In your prayer, you come and you communicate, you pray, and you listen. You talk to him about anything, and you talk to him about everything. And this is why Jesus himself withdraws so often to pray. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus going to lonely places places to pray. Why? Because it was in those places that he was able to simply be with the Father through prayer. I think so often what happens is we treat uh, our prayers more like a megaphone rather than a telephone, right? Telephones are, are, well, telephones used to simply be tools to help us communicate with one another, right? That's the idea is that you call someone and you talk and you listen. You have a conversation. You text someone. You text them and you res- they respond to you. But so often what happens is we treat prayer like a megaphone, where we put the megaphone up, and megaphones have one purpose, to let other people hear what you have to say. 
And so we go and we kind of point the megaphone to God and we just yell up to God about the different things that we want or need or are happening in our lives. And we do not allow his presence and his spirit to come and begin that formative work within our own hearts as we simply sit and are still before him. As we sit and we listen to what God's word has to speak to us through his Holy Spirit that is at work in our own lives. And so in the midst of it, we miss out on the power of prayer because we're just approaching it like a megaphone rather than a telephone. Jesus did not go out into the wilderness and just shout things up to God or pray because he needed something and then walk away when he was done. No, he spent time enjoying this ongoing conversation with the Father. And I believe that if if you experience and approach prayer in this way, what you'll begin to see is that Jesus, or God, he, in the midst of our prayers, he hears and he answers those prayers. In fact, the disciples saw this very reality in Jesus' life play out, that there is power in prayer. There's power in the, in the prayers that we come and offer before the Lord. It was in these moments where often the miracles that they saw happen in front of them would come as a direct result of their prayers. And I really believe that, that Jesus was able to tap into this new way of praying, this better way of praying. In fact, the disciples saw this as well. And the only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them The only thing was this simple phrase, simple question. Lord, teach us how to pray. Because they saw something different in the way that Jesus prayed, in the way that he ushered in the kingdom through his prayers. And so in this passage, Jesus moves on after that kind of spot to check our motives around our prayers, and he begins to show them what their prayers are to look like. He gives them a model to pray through. It's not a script to follow, but rather a model that kind of forces us to ask what's at the heart of our own prayers by looking at what was at the heart of Jesus's prayers. And so when Jesus says, this then is how you should pray, he's offering a model. He's not saying, here's what you should pray. He's offering, here's how you should pray. And this has been the heart of this passage from the beginning. There's a season where I I got into model cars, and I can remember my favorite model car that I I made was this blue AC Cobra. It was 1966 AC Cobra. It was awesome. When I would turn the steering wheel and the model, the wheels would turn. It had this, like, crazy complicated V8. uh, I believe it was a Mustang engine at the time. It was this cool model, and I loved this thing. But here's the reality. If I went to you and said, I own a 1966 AC Cobra, you'd be like, no way, can I ride in it? I'd be like, no, it's too small for us. Uh, it's not, it's, it's, uh, it actually wouldn't support your weight. You'd be a little offended, right? Why? Because having a model is not having the same thing. You know what I'm saying? And so what I mean by that is the simple thing is this is a model for our prayers, but it is not a substitute for you to simply just say, well, Jesus taught us how to pray, pray and I kind of keep this, and I still don't approach prayer any differently. No, no, this is a model for what our prayers are to look like, and you'll see at the end, it's not really just our prayers either. It's meant for our lives to really reflect this model of prayer 
as well. And you'll see in the midst of kind of this, what's the section known as the Lord's Prayer, the first half is all about kind of our focus on God. You'll see a lot of you or your language in that section. And the second half is it's a focus on us. And you'll see a lot of uh, language that centers around us or our, right? And so this model prayer gives us kind of five areas that we can pray through to experience the true purpose and power of prayer, the kind of prayer that ushers in the kingdom of heaven. So we'll jump right into it. So Jesus says in Matthew 6, 9, he says, this then is how you should pray. And here's what he says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In this first section, what Jesus is doing in this first line, he's teaching us to seek God's presence with a worshipful heart. Seek God's presence with a worshipful heart. This language of our Father, while it's pretty common to us today, it was very uncommon for people to approach God in that way. But for Jesus, it was the only way he knew how to approach God because Jesus was the Son and God was the Father. And the interesting thing is Jesus doesn't say, watch how I pray. He invites us to pray this way as well. Why, why would he do that? Because Jesus has redefined our relationship with God. As a result of his life, his death, his resurrection, and the fact that we can put our faith in him, what happens now is the moment we do that, the moment we, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that he came to die and pay the penalty for our sins, the moment we do that, Scripture says that we are adopted into God's family. And the moment we become adopted into his family, God is our Father. And so in this moment, Jesus is giving us a right view of who God is. Prayer begins with the proper view of who God is. And how you view God will have a direct impact on your prayers. And so as we hallow God's, hallow God's name, we set him apart from everything else in our lives. That's exactly what that word means, hallowed. It's, it's the Greek word hagiazo, which is, which is a word for holy or pure or consecrated. It's this idea that we have purified uh, God in our own hearts. We've set him apart from all the other things. We've consecrated him apart from all the other things in our lives. And the idea is that as we pray, we admire and we honor and we revere and we treasure and we value the name of God above everything else in our lives. And when we pray, we fulfill his purposes. We hallow his name. That's what you and I were actually created for, was for the worship and praise of God. See, his, his, his kingdom comes for that purpose. His will is done for that purpose, so that he would receive all the glory and the honor and the praise. And so Jesus is challenging his disciples, when you pray, pray by valuing God and letting him know it. That is the invitation for you and I, to seek God's presence with a worshipful heart. And Jesus continues to teach his disciples how to pray when he says this in verse 10. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus is teaching his disciples to do in this section is to seek God's priorities over our own. Your kingdom come, your will be done. 
Not my kingdom come or my will be done, but Jesus, your kingdom come. We are really praying in those words for two things. We're proclaiming that he, that we would look forward to the day when his kingdom will come. One of the things that churches don't teach you a lot about is when we read through scripture, what we ultimately see is that Jesus will return one day. And when he returns on that day, he will usher in the kingdom of heaven for the rest of eternity. And it's in these moments that we begin to see all what we read about in Revelation and kind of these uh, 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 prophetic, apocalyptic type of books throughout Scripture. And so there is a day when Jesus will return and his kingdom will come to earth and it will be that way for the rest of eternity. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, there's an element where we are praying, Lord, we long for that day for you to return to us so that we can be, be made perfect in your presence and enjoy your presence for the rest of eternity. But we're also praying that we would submit our lives to God here and now. It's not just down the road, again, it's not just that eternity starts down the road, it's that eternity starts now. And so yes, all things will be made new and be made perfect when Jesus, you return. But we submit ourselves for your will to be done now as well. We desire you to begin to do that work within us now, not just when eternity begins. And so, for those of you who pray those simple words, your kingdom come, we are praying about a day that we long for, but a day that begins now in our own submission to Jesus in the ways that we operate and live our lives. We long for the day that Jesus will return, and we want every area of our lives to look like the new creation that will come on that day in our families, in our friendships, in our work, in our hobbies, in our schools. We want God's kingdom to be present. And we want this to be done, and we want our, his will to be done in our lives. And can I just tell you, this is often difficult. This happens when we submit our will to his will. This happens when our desires come under his desires. When we submit our thoughts to his thoughts, our dreams to his dreams. That means that in everything, we willingly submit all of our lives to be molded and shaped by him. See, at the heart of this prayer is transformation. It's this idea to say, Lord, transform me through your priorities taking priority in my own life. Transform me to look more like you, God. And again, this is difficult, or this is easy to say, but difficult to walk in. When we pray, we're praying and believing that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect, like it says in Romans 12 too. And even if it doesn't feel like in that moment we're believing that reality, and this is necessary for us to experience the power of prayer. We will never experience the power of our prayer if our prayers are just about what we want. Power comes when we submit ourselves to God's will. Not the fulfillment of our own will, but the transformation of our hearts and our wills that come as we submit ourselves to him. And when that happens, you wonder the crazy thing is in our transformation, our, our will ultimately is formed to be his will. So as we walk and we submit, 
the things that we desire actually become the things that he desires. It's not that his will is changing, but our hearts are changed in the process of continually submitting before him to his words where we begin to desire the very things that bring him honor, glory, and praise. So we need to ask for God's priority over our own lives, God's priorities. Jesus continues his lessons uh, on prayer in verse 11 when he says, give us today our daily bread. In this passage here, in this line, he's see, God, Jesus is seeking, telling us to seek God's provision for our daily needs. Seek God's provision for our daily needs. We come to God requesting what we need for each day. And really the root of this is found in the Exodus story. When the Israelites left their captivity from Egypt, they went out into the wilderness. And in Exodus 16, we find that they were hungry and they were crying out to God. And in that moment, God began to provide for them this kind of bread known as manna and quail, this meat for them to eat. Yet he told them to only take what they needed for that day because if they took ever anything more than that, it would ultimately spoil and be gross for them to eat. They wouldn't be able to eat it. So every day it was a process of saying, Lord, I will trust that you will provide for exactly what I need for each day. And so they would go out each morning and they would gather what they needed for that day and they would utilize it and use it. And then the next morning they would do the same and God provided for them for the years as they wandered through the wilderness. And this is exactly what Jesus is challenging his disciples to pray in, in uh, Matthew 6, 11. He's saying, give us today our daily bread. We don't come with this laundry list of things. No, no, we, find, we come and say, here's what I need. And I really believe at the heart of this, it's this simple word, contentment. Contentment. Are we uh, are we willing to ask for the things that will make us content in our lives? Again, I believe this is why he says daily bread, not just the bread that you need for the rest of life. No, 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 it's your daily bread. Are you content to pray for the things that will make you content for each day? We come to God with what we need, not simply with every desire we have. And so often that's how we approach prayer. It's the laundry list. It's the genie wish list. It's the things that we put on our Amazon wish list so that we can pray and we want God to kind of give us whatever we need. And Jesus says, no, no, pray that God would provide your daily bread, the things that will make your heart content. So you come and you ask God for the things in your life that you need for your job, for your family, for your friends, for your physical needs, any kind of material needs that you might need. But we come and we ask for his provision for the things that we need in our lives. That's the simple reality. But when God does answer those things and when he does provide, provide those for those prayers, my challenge for you is to not forget him in the midst of it. Because throughout scripture, what we see are these passages that remind us that they don't come from us. They come from his hand. One of the best is James 1.17 that says, every good and perfect gift is not from us, it's from above. So when we receive those things, we remember where it came from. Philippians 4.19 says this, And my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And so, friends, when God does provide and when he does answer for your daily needs, remember him in those moments. Honor him. Acknowledge that they came from him. And remember that he comes to meet all of our needs according to the riches that we see through Jesus. So we come and we ask God to provide for our daily needs. 
He continues in verse 12 by saying, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In this line, Jesus is teaching his disciples to seek God's pardon for your sins. We come and we ask God for daily forgiveness of our sins, which is what that word pardon means. It's that we put our faith in, the moment that we put our faith in Jesus, we're justified for our sins once and for all. We're no longer guilty of the penalty of our sins that was done once for us. But what we need to do is we need to come and regularly ask for the sins that we're struggling with daily. Yes, the penalty is not counted against us anymore, but it has impact in how we walk with Jesus throughout our lives. When I think of our sins, I think it's helpful to think in these three terms, penalty, power, and presence. You see, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, he freed you from the penalty of sin. That penalty, Romans says, is death. Not just a physical death, but a spiritual death, a separation from God. You cannot know him. You cannot walk with him. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins. And the way that he paid for that was through his life, his perfect life, covering over our imperfect life. And so that we have been, we've been freed from the penalty of sin. And we are being freed from the power of sin in our lives. As we walk with Jesus each day and submit our ways to him, our lives to him, what happens over time is sin, is its power over our lives is loosened as we keep in step with the Spirit. More and more each day as we look more and more like Jesus, sin's power, its grip loosens on us. As we walk with Jesus, the Bible calls this sanctification. As we look more and more like Jesus, the idea is that we are, we are, the power of sin is less and less in our lives. And then presence, there will be one day when the presence of sin is gone. When Jesus comes back and ushers in his kingdom, the presence of sin will be gone. We will no longer experience sin's presence in our lives because Jesus will have come back and made all things new. And so we come and we are asking for forgiveness and for that loosening of the power of sin in our lives. Things like anger or jealousy or lust or hatred or wandering eyes or dishonesty. Whatever it is that you are struggling with, this is what we come and we ask for that daily forgiveness of sins for. And here's the beautiful thing. We have promises of scripture to help us know what happens when we confess our sins to God. One of the greatest, we've talked about this a few times over the last few weeks, is this, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us of our sins and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. I love this verse because it's a promise, first of all, that when we confess our sins, God will forgive us. He will. But here's the beautiful thing as well that no one really talks about. What's the second part of that verse? And he will purify us from all unrighteousness. And as we confess our sins, what will happen is the Holy Spirit will begin this work in our hearts where sin will become less attractive to us. He will begin to purify our hearts from our desire to participate in that sin. And so... If we ask for forgiveness about dishonesty, what God will begin to do is he will begin to purify us of that desire to be dishonest. If we come and we ask for forgiveness 
about a lustful heart, he will begin to purify us from that desire to lust. If he comes and, he, and we ask for forgiveness for jealousy, a haughty heart, he will begin to purify us of those desires. This is a promise of God that happens as a result of the Spirit's work in our lives. And so there's power when we come, we ask for God's pardon from our sins. So we need, to, we need to ask for forgiveness, but there's another part of that verse that not only do we need to ask for forgiveness, but we need to then forgive others in the same way that we have been forgiven, forgiven no matter the debt or the wrong. There is no qualifications here. Now, we've talked about our relationships a lot over the last few weeks, and if you weren't here a few weeks ago, I invite you to go back and listen to the podcast um, where we talked about anger. That's, that had to do with our relationships in the kingdom. And remember what we said about reconciliation. What we said about reconciliation a few weeks ago was that we are, re- we are responsible for pursuing reconciliation, but we are ultimately not responsible for reconciliation. Right? If we've wronged someone, our desire is to go and to ask for forgiveness, to repent of our wrongdoing. But if that person is not ready to receive that or, or restore the relationship, then all our goal at that point is to do is to continue to be with Jesus, to become like him and to do what Jesus did and to trust that over time, that person will see the fruit of forgiveness in our lives of repentance in our lives, and it will begin to restore that relationship. And so, for us, as we pray, we pray that our own sins are forgiven as we forgive the people around us. And I really believe what Jesus is saying is the way that you will forgive the people around you is direct evidence of your experience with God's forgiveness in your own life. If you have been forgiven much, the desire for you will be to go and then forgive much as well. So we come, we ask for God's forgiveness, his pardon from our sins. And finally, Jesus wraps up his kind of lesson on prayer in Matthew 7, 13, when he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What Jesus is teaching his disciples to do is seek God's power to overcome temptation. Let's be honest, life is difficult. There are days when we feel like we got it going on, and then there are days where we feel like we continually strike out and miss. What is happening in those moments is that there is a real enemy, a spiritual enemy that desires to take you out. In fact, Jesus says that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so anytime we see theft, death, and destruction, we can know that the enemy is at work in our lives. He comes and he knows no other way to speak than lies. Jesus describes him as the father of all lies. When he speaks, that's his native tongue. In the same way that you open your mouth and your your first language is English or maybe it's a different language, his first language is deception. There is an enemy who desires to take you down. And I think what has happened over time is we think God's the one bringing the temptations to us. But that actually is not true. What's happening is the enemy is tempting. Yes, the enemy has to come and ask permission and it has to be allowed. But ultimately, the enemy is the one who's coming and trying to take us out. 
And so we need to ask God to give us the strength to not give in to those temptations. We need to ask God to keep us from those situations where, where our enemy will take those opportunities to take us down in our temptation. But friends, if you feel like you've been striking out left and right when it comes to the temptation in your life, here's what I want to remind you of here today. That the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That the one who is in you has already overcome the grave. He has already overcome death. And that same spirit that allowed him to overcome all those things is living in you. I remember what Paul says often when I think of temptation in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Right? Isn't that what the enemy wants you to think? Your struggle, your temptation, only you are walking through it. No one else knows what you are going through. Friends, that is a lie. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. How gracious is our God. We must ask, for God, ask God for the ability to see the way out of our temptation and ask him to give us the strength to resist it when we face it. So we, we need God's guidance, Jesus' work, and the Spirit's strength to gain victory over our enemy. This is the model of prayer. These are not the exact things. Like every time, do you have to pray these exact words? No, but these can be the areas that we seek to pray through. This is what Jesus is challenging his disciples to pray like. This is what he's inviting us to pray. These kind of areas that we are seeking. In the next chapter, as we begin to wrap up, he comes back to prayer in Matthew 7. I think it's a perfect kind of exclamation point on his lesson around prayer. In this lesson, he reminds us of what our hearts need to be like as we come. And he shows us that we need to pray with persistence in Matthew 7. Here's what he says in verses 7 through 8. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus invites us to pray by means of a threefold command. Ask. Seek and knock. In the Greek, in the original language that these were written in, they're imperatives. These are commands that we are meant to obey. They're present tense, and so that means they're meant to be a continuous action. The idea would be ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. And they're in ascending order. Each command is more active and intentional than the last one. And so what we need to understand is that everyone who prays kind of receives this promise that when you ask, God will hear us. When you seek, God will reveal himself to you. When you knock, God will open the door that you are knocking on. This is the promise that he comes and asks us to pray with, uh, with, with, uh, with persistence, this desire to be continually persistent before him. That we come and we are coming and continuing to come and we have the desire to be formed to the image of his son and we are not going to relent in our pursuit of that. I remember a couple years ago, my daughter Grace, she wanted to get her ears pierced so bad. And we were kind of like, no, we want to wait till you are able to take care of your ears and keep them clean. Um, and so she 
in, if you know Grace, this is one of her greatest character traits, um, she is persistent. And so she continued to ask, and 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 she continued to ask, right? Until finally, we had called the, the, the jeweler that we went to, and we said, listen, we know that you don't normally let kids this young get their ears pierced, but will you please let her get her ears pierced? And sure enough, she said yes, and Grace went and got her ears pierced, and she loves it. She does a great job taking care of them. She, but she was so proud in that moment. She wanted them so badly. I think so often of that when I come and I pray. Do I pray with that kind of persistence? Where I come and I trust and I trust and I trust and I'm just persistent in desiring to see this very thing that's on my heart to happen. We, as we continually come, we reveal our own heart to God and, and, and for God and our desperate desire for him when we pray with persistence. Second, Jesus teaches us in the very next verses to pray with expectancy. In verses 9 through 11, here's what Jesus says. He says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? In these verses, Jesus is reminding us that we are praying to God our Father. And that we can trust him as our Father. And his whole illustration is, if you, though you are sinful, if you can give good gifts to your kids, how much better gifts will your Father in heaven give who does not have sin? This is kind of the play that he's making. I think of like my youngest daughter, Ava. She will often come to me and ask me for something, and I will say, no, Ava, you can't have that. And I kid you not, almost every single time she comes and asks me, you want to know what she does? She turns her head and she says, Dad, you're joking. I'm like, no, I'm not joking. You can't have ice cream at 10 a.m. You're like, I'm not joking. She's like, Dad, you're joking. Why? Because she just has this expectancy, this like trust within me that says like, I believe what you are, that you are going to do what I desire, that you are going to work for my good. But here's the interesting thing. We pray, and at times we don't get what we pray for. All right, I mean, let's just be honest. There are times when we pray, and the thing that we pray for, God does not do in our lives. So what's going on there? What's happening in that moment is our good and loving Father is giving us what we need. We think we're asking, we think we're asking for a fish, but ultimately the one who is able to see all things knows that we're actually asking for a snake. And so we come to God and we ask and we pray in the midst of a loss of a job or a loss of a family member or an undesired diagnosis or brokenness or heartache and we don't know what to do. So we cry out and we ask God to do what seems to be like the impossible. And there are times when he does it and there are times when he doesn't. Was one person's prayer more powerful than the other person's prayer? Did someone have less sin in their lives than the other person? You see, we try and justify all these. And friends, we have to remember that in our prayers, we are approaching God as our Father. And He ultimately knows what is best for us. We think we're asking for bread. 
but we're actually asking for a stone. And Jesus, in his grace and in his mercy, he gives us what we need, not necessarily what we want. I love this verse, or this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I found it just uh, the other week as I was reading about this. I think it's so true of at least my heart, I'll say that. Here's what he says. He says, Our Heavenly Father will correct our prayer and give us not what we ignorantly seek, but what we really need. And he wraps up the whole kind of passage by saying, Our Heavenly Father himself knows how to give far better than we know how to ask. Because he sees and knows and how, God, how, how his will will ultimately work for his good. Is there pain in the midst of unanswered prayers? Oh, so much pain. There have been days where I've cried out to God asking for something that he's never delivered. That specific request. But ultimately in those moments, I have to trust that he is our good father, that he is working for our good and for his good and for his glory. And I will trust that in those moments, some way, somehow, it will be used to advance his kingdom. It will be used in a way to usher in his kingdom here and now, not just one day when eternity comes. And I believe that he delights in blessing his children who ask and seek and knock. And we can ask and seek and not trusting and knowing that he will always and only get what, give us what is best for us to live for him and to do his will. Why? Because he is our father in heaven. So, prayer begins and it ends with a proper view of who God is. The Lord's Prayer began with our Father in heaven and it ends in the Sermon on the Mount with this simple reality that we are praying to our Father in heaven. So friends, when we pray, here's my simple challenge to you. That prayer is powerful. The kind of prayer that ushers in the kingdom of heaven, it's powerful when we pray the purposes of God. It's easy to pray our own purposes, our own desires, our own plans, but the power comes when we commit to praying about the purposes of God. It's not about the gifts we receive, but it's about the giver of the gifts. It's not about the words that we say, but it's about our, the heart behind it. It's not about our will being done, but it's about his will being done. It's not about what makes my name great, but about what makes his name great. And I want us to simply practice that together. And so in the time that we have remaining, we're going to do that. We're going to do that in a little bit of a unique way. On your way in, you saw some communion cups, and so hopefully you guys grabbed one. If you didn't, uh, I feel full freedom to go grab one now. They're just right on the other side of the curtain there in a container. But friends, this is an act that we actually have as a church to come and remember what Jesus has done for us. It's an act where we are able to come and speak Jesus' life, death, and resurrection over our lives. That's why when we take the bread, we're remembering Jesus' body, his life. That's why when we drink the juice, we're remembering his blood, which paid that penalty for our sins. So this act is meant to be an act that we speak his life over our lives. And in the Lord's Prayer, what happens is that Jesus is inviting each of us to seek those very things over our lives. And so we're going to end a little differently this morning. 
what I'm going to do is I'm simply going to remind us each of the areas that we're meant to seek through the Lord's Prayer. And then I'm, we're going to give you just a minute or two to kind of pray in that way, where you are, just you and God. And then at the end, together, we'll take the bread and we'll drink the juice and we'll end by worshiping him together. So just wherever you're at, get comfortable in your chair. We're going to take these next few moments just to pray and talk to our Father in heaven. Remember, Jesus invites each of us to pray for God's presence with a worshipful heart. He showed us this in Matthew 6 when he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So in these next few moments, just spend time in your own words praying for God's presence with a heart of worship. Father, we come and we declare that you are far greater than any name that has ever been known here on this earth. We value what you have done in drawing us to yourself through your son, Jesus. And we cannot thank you enough for the gift of the cross and what it means for our lives. Lord, we declare that it's not about us. Our lives are not our own, but rather we lay them before you and ask and pray, God, that you would do whatever it is that you desire so that your name, your kingdom would be advanced, so that the people in our community would see our lives, but ultimately glorify you in heaven. And Lord, we know that as we walk through this life, there's things that we need. Father, we pray, God, that you would help us in the things that we have going on in our lives. We each have unique things that are going on, unique challenges. But Lord, I pray that your presence would draw near to us and give us what we need for today. Perhaps the greatest thing that we need each and every day is to be forgiven of our sins. And so we ask and we pray that you would wipe our slates clean that you would give us not just forgiveness, but freedom from those sins. We pray that you would loosen the power that the sins that we struggle with has on our hearts, on our lives. And we pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would not only purify us from the unrighteousness, but you would give us the power to overcome any temptation that the enemy has for us. So Jesus, we come. And we declare your life, your death, your resurrection over our lives and pray, God, that we would be known as people of prayer, that we would come with persistent but expectant hearts before you to see the very things that you desire. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you're doing. We pray this 